You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline Hyde's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Our top stories, full earnings coverage ahead as Apple loses its $3 trillion market cap crown amid tepid demand for iPhone. Plus, Amazon seeing strong revenue growth even as the e-commerce giant reigns in that spending under CEO Andy Jassy. And Nikola replacing its CEO after less than a year of running the electric truck maker. We'll bring you the details on why and a new familiar face take the wheel. It is our top story. Apple and Amazon reporting quarterly earnings. You look at the investor response, Apple down 3%. That means its market cap is now below 3 trillion US dollars. It has lost that 3 trillion market cap crown. The story here is about executives talking iPhone acceleration into the fiscal fourth quarter ending in September, services continuing to be strong, but double digit declines in wearables and iPad. The story, is it technology and a lack of upgrades or new generation platforms in the quarter gone? Are we waiting for iPhone 15? Let's get right to Apple and bring in Julie Ask, principal analyst at Forrester. Tim Cook's talking about weakness in the smartphone market in the US, but strength in India and China. What were the main stories for you out of this quarter's earnings? So specific to the smartphone, the main stories are is that Apple uh, did well in China. They did well in new markets that are traditionally dominated by Android, and they had more, and they had a record for the number of people who switched from Android to iOS. Uh, the challenge with the smartphone market is just as you said, it is a mature market. When you look at US online adults, 95% of them own a smartphone. It, uh, the, the devices are very expensive. The devices are amazing. They, uh, the, the upgrade cycles are slower. It's not like 10 years ago where we all bought a new phone every two years. It's just these phones are serving consumers now like PCs for three, four, and even five years at a time. So it's, it's, it's going to be tough. I don't think it's a surprise, but it, it's going to be like this because the market's mature unless you go out and find new customers and break into some new markets. Julie, I'd like to do some mental arithmetic with you. Which, are you open to doing that with me? Okay. I'm going to try. Let's try. Apple said 
it has an installed base of 2 billion devices globally. They also said they had 1 billion paid subscribers now. But clearly, there is a big pocket of Apple device users around the world that are not paying for an Apple service. They're using what's available for free. Are you able to work out, therefore, the path forward, how Apple and how many of those users Apple can convert to paying for a service? Well, I think, Ed, one of the tricks in the numbers is, is right, one, there's a couple of things that we know about Apple users. One, they're relatively affluent compared to Android owners. And the second thing is, is we know that they own multiple devices. It would not be uncommon in markets like the United States for someone to own a laptop, a tablet, a smartphone, and even a smartwatch. And so we have 2 billion active devices. That doesn't mean we have 2 billion owners. Uh, right, we have fewer owners because each person owns multiple devices. But the strength in that story, I think, comes back to the you know the arguments that you were making earlier about the services. Uh, the more devices I own, the more valuable the services become to me because they work across all of my devices. And yeah, so I, I can continue down that path, or we can shift right. gears. Uh, their services well, story is a very strong one, and they're laying, they've been laying the groundwork for years and years for that just services revenue to continue to build and build and build with video, with audio, right? They've got almost 20% in the United States paying for music, paying for video. Go ahead. Julie, let's be constructive then and say yeah. what was exciting for you based on what was discussed on the call or, or what they put in the earnings statement. So what was exciting for me, I would say one was the, uh, was the services number was up, right? And that speaks to the power of the ecosystem. The second thing that's always exciting for me is looking at the wearables market, right? You know, you talked about in your opening that the smartphone is the device. It is the device that Apple counts on. And we've all been talking about, will there be something that comes after the smartphone and replaces it? And we haven't seen that yet. Uh, but what we are looking at, right, $40 billion um, in the wearables and the home market, 35% of U.S. online adults own a smartwatch now. It is outpaced uh, fitness wearables. Uh, so you're seeing the vision for that could come up in time. So I think that part of it is interesting, right? And Apple continues to lay the groundwork here. We have always said that a smartwatch will have more utility and become more valuable when it's my payment mechanism when it's my health mechanism, when it's my identity mechanism. And when we look at all of the states trying to move my driver's license, my insurance onto the Apple wallet, uh, that, that translates to the watch and those things are gonna be more valuable. So that's the second thing that I would yes. look at. Well, I, I just wanna jump in. Let me, let me yeah, take a ahead. moment, Julie, really quick. So I'm looking at these beautiful yeah. images of Vision Pro. And yeah, it takes Vision me Pro's back amazing. to being, right, exactly. And being back at WW, well, you say it's amazing. Okay, but did we learn I, I anything them on. new? If you had them on, you're like, wow, that's, that's something. And then what, you're one of a small group then. But did mm -hmm. you hear anything last night that gives you a better sense of how wide the rollout of this Vision Pro is going to be globally? No, I, you know, this is going to be tough initially on, right? You know, from what I've heard, they're still, you know, working through, you know, getting the product ready for market. I mean, it's still carrying nearly like a $3,500 price point, right? I mean, that may be mid-price for a computer, but it's not mid-price for a consumer device. So that's, uh, I think we're going to be in a wait-and-see situation there in 2024. The technology impresses. The ecosystem impresses. Yeah, what their rollout is going to be, right? That's a different question. Well, that's a bit of a wait-and-see. 
Julie Asker Forrester, the key analysis on Apple, those shares down 3%, the $3 trillion market cap crown gone. Thank you very much. The other big earnings story is Amazon. Joining us is Melissa Burdick, PacView president and co-founder. Amazon, completely the opposite, beating across the board, investors cheering those results. What I found so interesting is the core business, Amazon.com, is seeing growth. But they're also getting better at making money in the more profitable areas of, of the e-commerce business, namely advertising and selling services to those independent merchants. What was your sort of analysis of, of that part of the, the business? Yeah, I mean, they had their biggest earnings beat since Q4 of 2020. And basically every single area, they, they did a good job. The two drivers, AWS and ads, were really up. Um, advertising, this business was on fire this quarter, over you know $10.6 billion. And we have a benchmark report at, at PacView where we look at um, you know quarter over quarter return on advertising spend. And that was also really strong enough this quarter. So they saw great results for advertisers. Um, with ads, they also have implemented some new new generative AI capabilities. And then also they have Amazon Marketing Cloud and Amazon Stream, which offers a lot of great data analytics, real-time optimization. And that has really helped fuel advertising spending this quarter. Melissa, let's zero in on AWS because at the end of the day, it's the majority of operating income. What did you learn about the rest of the year, how AWS is going to continue to grow? Because if we go back to Microsoft just a week ago, we were a bit concerned about this broad market. Yeah, I mean, that, that every, all the eyes were on AWS this quarter. They actually were up 12%, which last quarter they were 16%. So it's just been a declining kind of increase quarter over quarter, but they still beat. I think the biggest challenge has been our companies, companies have been cost-cutting, and the AWS has been has been cut. Even our own company has been looking stringently at how do we, you know, like operate most efficiently, and AWS is kind of a target. But Andy Jassy spent a long time on the investor call yesterday talking about how AWS has stabilized how consumer, you know, companies are, are in, we're increasing their workloads. And then he also spent a lot of time about all the generative AI capabilities that they're launching, Code Whisper, Bedrock, and the use cases yes. around these. So those are, you know, and then, look, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I just want to jump in on that point because how Andy Jassy described that, though, was Amazon taking the first few steps in a marathon. And I think we still have the question, how does Amazon make money on the, the basically enterprise and cloud-focused AI offering? Do you have an answer to that? You know, that, it's a tough one. Like, generative AI isn't actually a big investment from Amazon, so they're going to have to invest a lot of money and resources to build that out. But the idea is, is that they can grab market share and have more, much more of an attractive offering because their product is so amazing. It's much more efficient. Helps it helps customers use it. So, you know, I think all eyes are on this. Uh, Microsoft and Google. I think they were up 26 and 28 percent last quarter, while Amazon was up uh, 12 percent in cloud. Um, but the those are on smaller basis, but I think that's that's definitely something to look at because others are, you know, is their market share going to grow? Um, you know, what's the reaction? Melissa, very very quickly, what do you give Andy Jassy on his quarterly report card, A, B, or C for the job he's done? 
he's done an A. You know, he all his cost-cutting measures over the last two years, he's really improved efficiency. Uh, the warehouse, you know, they've moved from a national to regionalized operation. That was huge. And they're getting shipments to customers faster. That that has been a huge improvement. So I think um, a, he, he's done a great job. And this quarter is a result of the last two years. Melissa Burdick, Packview president and co-founder on all things Amazon. Thank you so much. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, sports and streaming. What one internet TV provider's strong earnings means for the future of streaming sports on platforms. We're going to talk to the CEO of Fubo TV next. Another big, big story. We're watching shares of Nikola down 12% now. Steve Gursky, who led the SPAC that took them public in June 2020, he's been chairman since September of 2020. He now is in the CEO job. Michael Loescheller is out for personal reasons. We will bring you the details later in the show. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, going viral. Everyone on social is talking about the FIFA Women's World Cup. Searches for the tournament trending on Google as it heats up into the knockout stages. Fierce rivals Sweden and the United States will meet once again in the round of 16, but this time the stakes are even higher. The U.S. is vying for a third consecutive World Cup, but we're nearly eliminated by Portugal. Sweden won all of their group matches. This World Cup have outscored opponents nine goals to one. All right, speaking of games and where you can find them, Fubo TV exceeded North American guidance in the second quarter, achieving $305 million in revenue. That's up 41% year on year. The internet TV provider's sports first live streaming model, making progress towards profitability in 2025. Here's to tell us all about it Fubo TV's CEO, David Gandler. You know, I find Fubo TV so interesting. You know, People call you a streaming platform, but you're essentially a, a, a software platform to get garner right. and get other people's uh, streams and content. What was the big driver for you in, in recent financial performance? 
Yeah, well, I think it's all of the above. The company had a very uh, clean print. Uh, we, uh, as you said, we grew revenues uh, up over 40%. We grew subscribers over 20%. We uh, increased our average revenue per user uh, by 13%. Uh, ad revenue uh, increased uh, by about 5% year over year. So across the board, um, I think we've operated very well. And also we've been very measured and disciplined as it re relates to uh, our cost structure. Uh, and uh, as you can see from our, our bottom line, we've improved by about $40 million. So uh, everything that the team has been uh, focused on over the last six months is uh, certainly uh, starting to come to fruition. Let's talk about the FIFA Women's World Cup. How is that driving things for you right now? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, our DNA uh, is soccer. Uh, we launched uh, Fubo as a football uh, or soccer uh, platform. Women's World Cup is performing quite well. We're starting to see uh, increasing traction, double-digit traction, uh, as the tournament progresses. And as you know, we're still sort of, I would say, relatively early in the tournament. And so we're looking forward to uh, continuing to drive viewership uh, for the Women's World Cup. And, of course, the U.S. Uh, women's national team. You know, we've discussed here on Bloomberg Technology, frankly, like turmoil in sports TV. The industry faces a lot of long-term questions on profitability, but also cultural, technological questions. Outline for me, David, how you see people consuming sports in the future, the platforms, the devices. Yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. It's a very, very complicated uh, industry with media companies and physical platforms, uh, sticks like Roku and Amazon. And then you have uh, companies like Fubo, which are software-based, platform agnostic, that allow people to move from device to device in any room in the house seamlessly, uh, giving them access to their favorite teams uh, and other content through one uh, single app. So I think we're, we're positioned uh, for growth. Uh, in a space where you're going to see, um, I would say, significant competition uh, from the likes of connected TV players that you're very familiar with, like Amazon uh, and yes. Roku. But at the same time, you see uh, the increase in competition from, you know, manufacturers like Samsung and Vizio. So uh, we think that we're going to continue to uh, increase the leverage that we have because we are driving uh, significant eyeballs uh, across all of these platforms. And, you know, again, we're aggregating content for consumers and making sure that they're able to uh, remove a lot of the friction and fragmentation that they have to deal with on a daily basis. David, to what extent does cable regional sports networks die? Well, um, as you know, we have differentiated uh, versus other platforms in the United States due to our sort of, I would say, our local footprint. Uh, we believe that there is a primacy in sports and more so uh, even in local sports, which has been uh, a really strong driver of viewership uh, for us. But, you know, we have relation, a great relationship with Diamond Sports, which controls the majority of the regional sports networks. But at the same time, we've continued to build solid relationships with the league, particularly with Major League Baseball, given that we're in season. And we've also made a number of marketing announcements with teams across uh, basketball uh, and baseball to continue to drive more awareness uh, for their video products on our platform. So, you know, at the moment, uh, we're confident yeah. in both those directions. Uh, David, quickly, the virtual cable bundle isn't working for anyone else. It is for you. What's your secret? 
You know, I, I always like to say it comes down to product. Uh, I think we do a really good job surfacing a lot of the content that people like. We do it in a very premium uh, user experience. And, um, you know, historically, we've been known for really spending a lot of time developing innovative features. And, uh, you know, we've been first to market on things like 4K and MultiView, which is now something that um, other services, including Apple, uh, has now launched. Um, actually, I think it was weeks ago that they began to roll that out. But now we're focused on video AI features and being able to really tap into the most exciting moments uh, in a very personalized way uh, in a discrete fashion for each of our users. So that's sort of the area where I think we'll, we'll continue to focus. All right, Fubo TV CEO David Gandler, good to catch up. Airbnb reporting a slower pace of growth than the number of nights booked as prices for lodging remain high despite that shares now moving higher, kind of chopped around in Friday morning session. Joining us now, Tom White, DA Davidson analyst, who has a buy rating on Airbnb, a $162 price target. You're billing this as a solid quarter, constructive guidance, and I think in a little bit we can talk about some of the new tech that they and product that they've hinted as well. But what is the big picture story? Tom for Airbnb? Because we've seen others like Expedia, for example, give worrying signs about people's travel habits. Yeah, look, so, you know, Airbnb is, it's not a cheap stock. It's got a high valuation and with high valuations come pretty high expectations for for earnings. But, uh, you know, I think they did just enough uh, this earnings print to uh, kind of get people excited still about the story, uh, maybe tone down some of the chatter about uh, you know, the inevitable sort of normalization of the travel landscape and people kind of going back to traditional hotels uh, and sort of more traditional travel patterns and, and maybe a little bit less of the vacation rental type stuff. Um, so on top of that, they, they also talked about some interesting new kind of product uh, opportunities and kind of growth unlocks, if you will, for, for 2024, which I think the, the market's uh, responding well to. Which of those hints caught your eye the most? Well, it's funny. I mean, we've been doing a lot of work um, following the experiences space, sort of the tours and attractions space. Uh, so it's it's easy to kind of point to that as an exciting category. I think what's interesting about uh, what what Airbnb calls experiences is that uh, it's kind of this enablement of a new product, um, and and in a lot of ways, it's similar to what Airbnb be did with um, uh, the inventory in its lodging accommodation, right? It enabled this entire new class of travel product, this entire new class of accommodation product. And with experiences, they have an opportunity potentially to do the same thing. Uh, but there's also other, other things too. Um, advertising for hosts, so a way for hosts to promote themselves more and, and sort order. Uh, that could be a nice little revenue tailwind for Airbnb. Uh, and also uh, new services for guests. So think about you know trying to more you know better professionalize if you will uh, kind of the guest experience, make it a little bit more hotel-like in some ways. I think those are the types of things that Airbnb is kind of thinking about testing, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll hear more about that in the coming quarters. Tom, quickly, does does Airbnb still have a technology advantage over the kind of every other offering that's out there in the short-term rental space? 
Yeah, look, you know, it's it's hard to point to any one single technology feature, but um, I think um, kind of the, the pace and the flurry of innovations and product upgrades that these guys make quarter after quarter, uh, we think that they are still solidly ahead, uh, particularly when it comes to kind of the host experience. They've made a lot of um, uh, efforts to streamline the uh, onboarding of hosts and, and for first-time hosts, making it a lot easier just to get your, your house or your room up on the platform and available to book. They've recently rolled out new features to help hosts understand pricing and, and do analytics around what's the best um, level to price their inventory. So uh, short answer is, yeah, we think they're still solidly yeah. ahead of the competition, but they got to keep working on it. All right, Tom White, DA Davidson, a long earnings week for you and I both. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. There's a number of stories within the earnings print that we have not dis uh, discussed. Let's stick with Apple, bring in Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. The one idea that you and I talked about last night, Mark, was Apple talking about comps with a year earlier, an iPad, and then also currency headwinds. You're not buying it. Why? Well, first of all, in terms of the iPad decline, right, that's a 20% decline. It's one of the biggest declines in the history of the iPad. And what they're doing is they're trying to partially blame it uh, on a comparison to the launch of the M1 iPad Air. That iPad Air came out last March. I'm not entirely sure how many sales of the iPad that actually drove, right? So I think it's not a totally fair comparison. I think the bigger picture is the iPad compared to the latest Macs is simply not as compelling as it used to be. I think more consumers are going to the Mac. The pricing is very strong. The 15-inch MacBook Air is fantastic. The chips in the latest MacBooks are terrific. And then combined with that, consumers are noticing that changes to the iPad Pro in particular, that's the highest revenue driving iPad, have been very light. That device has not received a redesign in over five years or close to five years since it was revamped in 2018. I'm told there'll be much bigger changes to the iPad Pro uh, in the spring, an OLED display, a revamped design, some new charging capabilities. So that's going to be pretty significant, and consumers may be holding out for that big revamp. The story is that weakness in iPhone in the quarter gone did not do enough to offset a record quarter for services revenue. What else are we expecting, based on what Luca Maestri, the CFO, had to say, going into the fiscal fourth quarter, which is the period ending September. Yeah, what the CFO said is he gave guidance uh, on three items. The first was that the performance in terms of the growth or lack thereof will be consistent between Q3 and Q4. So that means you can expect a Q4 decline of about 1.5%, right? Okay, so that's not awful, but that is going to be the fourth quarter in a row where Apple declines. That's the first time this has happened since 2001. The second thing he said is that iPhone revenue growth as well as services uh, would accelerate so that's going to mean that you're going to see more growth for services and the iPhone uh, in the fourth quarter. So that means the iPhone had Q3 decline of about 2.5%. It'll be less than that, or maybe we'll see some growth thanks to the iPhone 15. The third thing he said is that the iPad and Mac would continue their declines, and they would both fall double-digit percentage points. Now, that makes sense given that new Macs are not coming out until later uh, in the quarter, right? They're not coming out or later in the year 
year. They're not coming out until the first quarter, and I'm not expecting any major iPad news until calendar 2024, which is also uh, in, in the fiscal quarter after Q4. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, not just giving the earnings breakdown, but weaving in his latest reporting as well on all things Apple. Thank you very much. The other top story is Amazon. Joining us now, Bloomberg Spencer Soper out of Seattle. Wow, the Andy Jassy effect. He has really pulled it out of the bag. What for you is the biggest takeaway, Spencer? Well, it's it's hard to narrow to any one one particular thing. It was more that everything was was, you know. Uh, kind of firing on all pistons. So if we look back to the first quarter, analysts were worried because they divulged at that time that uh, cloud sales continued to, to decelerate, that they were seeing a softness. So a big takeaway from this print is that investors kind of expect that uh, cloud computing sales for Amazon are at kind of the bottom of the trough and they're going to kind of keep, you know, come back. Uh, the other thing is on the poor e-commerce business is that we're really seeing uh, the benefits of all of the cost cutting that Andy Jassy's been doing. You know, they laid off about 27,000 corporate employees. They've been slashing a lot of these kind of uh, experimental projects that are seen as not um, not yielding returns anytime soon. And so I think that uh, the print, which had a beat on uh, profits for the second quarter and also an expectation uh, to be you know, what the street was looking for in the current quarter just shows that th those things are paying off and that, that Jassy's bringing a sense of a sense of discipline, whereas uh, his predecessor, Jeff Bezos, you know, kind of ran Amazon as like a almost like a, a VC fund, you know, just lots of lots of scattered projects going on at any time to see what uh, what would rise. And, and Jassy's kind of clamping down on that. You know, we went into earnings knowing AWS, Amazon Web Services, the cloud unit, is going to be important. It always is. But there is a big portion of, of the Bloomberg technology audience out there that aren't familiar with AWS, Spencer. You know, they know Amazon as the, the company that magically delivers packages to their doorstep. Just explain why AWS was important and how it performed in the quarter. Well, for years now, uh, Amazon's cloud computing business, and this is basically... Uh, people renting space on Amazon's in Amazon data centers uh, that they access via the internet. Um, for years now, it's basically been the, the primary profit engine of Amazon. Whereas the e-commerce business, you know, it, it's up and down. It's profitable, and then it's not profitable. And AWS is kind of the thing that's that's been sustaining it and also growing um, at, a, at a healthy clip for years, but started started slowing down because if there was uh, as as there was some uneasiness in the economy. Uh, folks that were buying AWS services were, were, were pulling back, were pulling back on that investment. Um, now, and especially with uh, all of the interest in artificial intelligence, Amazon's trying to position itself as a key place to uh, access tools for artificial intelligence, and they see that as a, as a boost to their uh, cloud computing business, even though some folks think maybe they're getting beat a little bit by, by Microsoft. But it's still an opportunity for them. And uh, the cloud computing division is just going to be something investors will be, will be watching uh, for, for some time to come. All right, Bloomberg, Spencer Soper with the most fantastic shirt on television this Friday. Thank you to break down all things Amazon. All right, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, so many more earnings to recap. We'll hear from Matt Calkins, the founder and CEO of cloud computing company Appian, about its second quarter results and updated outlook. This is Bloomberg.
Actually, before we head to break, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta President Rafael Bostic caught up with Bloomberg's David Weston in Aspen, Colorado, weighing in on his thoughts, generative AI. Have a listen. What I would say on the generative AI, it is happening so fast mm. and change is happening so fast. So this is really a frontier. We're going to have to, we're going to frankly do new things and different things to try to keep up with it because it is the question that will, I think, drive a lot of what happens in our economy for the next several years. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Look, many companies are chasing the big large cap stocks in the artificial intelligence race. Cloud computing company Appian, though, says it's in a different race to establish a distinct AI future. The company also posting second quarter sales, the top estimates, and narrowed its adjusted loss per share forecast for the full year. Joining us now, Appian CEO Matt Calkins, along with our very own Alex Brinker out of Los Angeles. Find this really interesting, Matt. There's a, there's a real focus on the cloud environment right now. Your cloud subscription business grew 30% year-on-year in the quarter gone. What was the main driver of that? Uh, well, there's steady interest in our ability to manage the way a process works across an organization. Uh, we coordinate mission-critical processes for major customers around the world, and there's, there's a sustained demand for that, particularly in the age of AI. And Matt, looking at across the industry, cloud businesses have kind of had a tough quarter. You guys seem to be a bright spot. In general, cloud spending, do you think we've kind of reached the bottom of this challenging time in the current economic environment? I think spend follows productivity gains, and particularly with AI, automation as a sector is going to deliver powerful new productivity gains, and, uh, and that's going to pave the way for new spending levels. 
Matt, when you uh, talked about your approach to AI with investors and analysts yesterday on your earnings call, I was really struck by something you said that uh, you think that companies, organizations like yours and your clients should be bringing algorithms and training them in-house. Now, that's a different approach than we've seen from the likes of Meta, who have been kind of evangelizing open sourcing artificial intelligence. Can you kind of explain a little bit of your take on this idea of bringing everything in-house when it comes to organizations bringing AI into their businesses? We typically work with large organizations, mission-critical organizations, uh, with regulated industries, sensitive data. For those customers, a public AI model doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to send your data across the internet. It doesn't make sense to cultivate an algorithm that, the, that you don't own and that you could lose if you lost your contract with a big tech vendor. These CIOs and these organizations are going to need the benefit of AI, but they're going to need it on their own terms. They're going to need to preserve their own information, which is their most valuable asset. They're going to need to own that AI algorithm that they've helped to create. We're going to enable that. We see that as a parallel market to the AI that everybody's talking about. We think private AI is its own objective, and it's going to appeal to a healthy sec sector uh, of our customers. And Matt, if this last earnings season's any guide uh, for all of the large cloud companies, say Meta, Alphabet, uh, keeping AI or, or housing AI in cloud is expensive. It requires lots of servers, lots of compute power, and it also requires highly technical individuals to make this happen. So are you kind of saying that as you look out across your client base, these folks with sensitive data, that they're going to have to kind of build this tech infrastructure in-house, hire these talented folks in-house? How does this evolution look internally at businesses if they take this private AI approach. There is publicly available AI. Uh, that's easy to, easy to source. What you need then is to train or fine tune it on internal data. That's the tricky part, and that's where we plan to spend most of our energy helping by collecting data sets that span the enterprise, arranging them, and then training them automatically, using them to train data to AI algorithms automatically. We're going to facilitate that, that step from merely having a general capable AI platform sourced from outside, and then cultivating a unique AI intelligence based on that by, by training it on your own data. That's the hurdle that we're going to focus on getting our customers across. Matt, at the heart of this story is the question, what is Appian's technological competence or, or point of difference from anyone else out there offering uh, the ability to train a large language model in-house or through a third party? Appian does two things, if I may say so, the best. Uh, one of those is we do process. Uh, we route work from one worker to another when some of those workers are digital. AI is a new digital worker, and we're going to have to route a lot of work. In every business that uses AI, you're going to be routing work to and from AI. So that's one of our big edges. And then the other one is our mastery of data. We have a data fabric that connects all the data in an enterprise and allows you to gather custom data sets for training in AI. We're going to rely heavily on those two features to give us an advantage in the opening world of private AI. 
All right, Appian CEO Matt Colkins and Bloomberg's Alex Barinka. Thanks to you both and a happy Friday. All right, here on Bloomberg Technology, it is time for Talking Tech. First up, Apple, Samsung and HP are freezing new imports of laptops and tablets into India. The South Asian country abruptly banned inbound shipments without a license, which surprised some of the world's biggest PC makers. That, according to unnamed sources, tech firms are now engaging with New Delhi on how they're going to obtain licenses quickly. Plus, Qualcomm and NXP Semi are teaming up in order to rival the likes of SoftBank's arm. The chip designers are working with other firms to fund a new company specializing in RISC-V technologies for chip designs. The unnamed business will initially focus on applications for cars. And a workers' union is accusing Alphabet of illegally ending contracts for a host of Google help workers that were trying to, to unionize. Organizers filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, accusing the internet giant of retaliation against a number of writers, graphic designers, and launch coordinators responsible for AI-related tasks at the company. Payments company Shift4 raised its outlook for the year after reporting record results in the second quarter. Joining us for more is Shift4's founder, CEO, Jared Isaacman, who we also know on this program, of course, as an astronaut and jet pilot. Uh, Jared, good morning to you. What gave you the confidence to raise guidance? Hey, uh, Ed, thanks for, for having me on the show. Um, it's a great question, right? Because you think about the macro picture right now, and there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, but, you know, Shift4's growth largely comes from winning share of a very large addressable market. I mean, we, we grew payment volume 60% year over year. That, that's obviously not very driven by same-store sales. I mean, that's, that's a factor of just taking a lot more customers now than we had in the year prior. And that's, and that's really what's driving the, the, um, the raise to our outlook is we're winning a lot of share across all our key verticals, and we're also expanding internationally. So we're able to take all the products and services that work for us here in the U.S. and, and bring them into new markets. So that, that's a large part of the confidence going into the, the guidance lift. There was two items on the call that caught my eye, and it's an issue of technology but fees. And, and you kind of called out some of your competitors over the issues of fees in the context of hotels, restaurants. Why? Yeah, I, I think, um, first of all, we, we have some awesome competitors, and, and they're doing great, and they're going to continue to, you know, win a lot of share, especially within the restaurant vertical. But, you know, there was, you know, a very public misstep in which, um, you know, an intent by one of our competitors to start charging a lot of junk fees directly to consumers for placing online orders. And this just isn't the time. I mean, you know, the economy is on somewhat shaky ground. I mean, hopefully we're he heading for that soft landing. Um, but I don't think it's the time to start uh, penalizing consumers uh, who want to go out and eat or, or do a takeout order and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, we did the exact opposite. We said, look, any 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 of uh, these restaurant customers that aren't happy with where they're at, we'll, we'll pay you 5000 to move over to Shift 4. And instead of penalizing you for online ordering, we'll give you a dollar for every online order during the promotion period. Um, and we can do that because we're profitable. I mean, you know, we grew EBITDA 68% year over year. We, you know, we have high 50% free cash flow uh, conversion. We, we don't need to price and fee our way to profitability like others out there. In fact, we can turn yes. around to put some of that capital to work when it's needed. Uh, Jared, most of the interactions between you and I have been in the context of you being an astronaut. I have a few key questions before we lose you. Does Polaris Dawn happen before the end of this year? 
that's probably a very well-researched question. Uh, look, we hope so. I mean, that's, you know, we're still aiming, um, you know, officially uh, towards the end of the year. But as you know, you know, the Polaris program is a research development type initiative. We're building things that haven't been done in 50 years since we last walked on the moon. And some things are just completely brand new. And, and that puts some risks in the timelines. But when it does fly, you know, it'll be a very exciting mission. And, um, yeah, we're, we're still hopeful towards the end of the year. You've already done the highest altitude SpaceX orbit. Uh, we've, we've told that story in the show. Just very quickly explain the work you're doing on spacesuits, the technology development you're involved in. Yeah, so this next mission coming up, Polaris Dawn, is really exciting. It'll be, um, you know, the highest al uh, Earth altitude ever flown, 1,400 kilometers. So it'll be the farthest that humans will have gone from the Earth since the last time we walked on the moon 50 years ago. Uh, two of our crew members, uh, Sarah and Anna, will be the women who have journeyed and explored farthest from Earth, which is very cool. Then we're going to come down in altitude. We're going to vent down the cabin and do a spacewalk with a brand-new spacesuit, uh, a generation of which of the suits we'll be testing, which are the first new suits in 40 years might be what what people are wearing on the moon and mars someday which is pretty awesome and then we're gonna we're gonna test a new constellation of uh satellites out uh laser to laser communication with starlink satellites and do about five days of science and research all right shift force founder ceo jerry Eisenman. we are also watching on polaris dawn thank you so much for your thanks time. for having me in all right, next, a lot to digest out of Nikola. Shares falling after reporting earnings and revenue and a deliveries outlook that's been cut in recent times, but more interesting, a new CEO who's also a familiar face. Joining us now out of Bloomberg's Detroit bureau, David Welch. David, you and I have covered this story closely. Steve Gursky is now CEO of Nikola. What's happened? So look, Mike Loeschelder, who was Steve's hand-picked CEO uh, coming out of uh, GM's former German Opel unit, they'd worked together there years ago, he was the car guy, he was the engineer who was going to come in and, and make all of this happen. And uh, he's had uh, some issue with family that he's going back to Germany, I believe, to, to take care of. And so Gursky is stepping uh, out of the non-executive chairman's job back into the CEO's role and he's going to be an operating guy. He's even, I guess, uh, going to have a place down in Arizona where the company is. Steve lives in New York and uh, he's going to spend a lot of time down there. So he's going to do, he's not an interim CEO. He's going to do this as long as, uh, as it takes to, to get the company really moving and really going. Quite a you know, big it was a surprise. Right. This was a surprise to both of us this morning. The context is that he was at the helm of the SPAC, Vector IQ, that took Nikola public. He was involved in all of Trevor Milton's roller coaster saga that you and I have covered so closely. Bloomberg's David Welch out of Detroit. Thank you so much. That does it, I'm afraid, for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. It's just been an immense week. So earnings heavy, Apple, Amazon. We also had other numbers earlier in the week. A lot to recap there for, so don't forget about our podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, we publish on Apple, Spotify, and iHeart, but also on all the existing Bloomberg platforms. The thing is, the earnings story continues into next week. So much more to refocus on as well, particularly in the field of AI. From San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.